I am now recording. Okay, I can close that chatty bit now, can't I? Uh, yep. Uh, how do I get rid of it? For fuck's sake, close. <laughs> no, the chat won't go away. Would you go away, please? Fucking hell. No, it's gone. Are, are, are you done being a granddad? <laughs> <laughs> oh, hang on. Yeah, we're recording now, aren't we? I can't be done being a granddad unless um, unless we kill my grand granddaughter. Uh, let's not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it would go down well on my CV, but probably not. How are you getting on with the children, dude? I've got, I've got a, I've got to be honest. I'm lurching between completely totally overwhelmed and unable to cope and kind of occasionally thinking oh, I can do this <laughs> it's, it's, it's like nothing I've ever had to do before oh my god me yeah so are you enjoying the actual teaching part like without all the I assume a lot it. of paperwork there <laughs> Some of it, yeah. Um, I'm totally I'm out of my depth with a lot of it, but it's just I mean I mean I'm only two weeks in, so I'm not yeah. I'm trying to be pragmatic about it, but uh yeah. Anyway, um how do we how are we gonna begin this um thing? It's, uh, let's uh, uh, have you got pages and pages of notes like you used to have? <laughs> I have, but I'll skim over them. Okay, because I'm looking for some relaxation. I've been lesson planning all day. And, uh... Well, I'm quite hungover. Oh, are you? Uh, which is fun. I woke up at like four-ish. So, In the afternoon? Uh, yeah. So... I'm not drinking alcohol tonight because I feel like that would be unwise. Well, I am. I... Uh... I've got fuck all. I mean, I've got lesson plans done for tomorrow. That's how far up to date I am. I've got oh, I'm shit. To well, by the lectures, um... choir and bands. I don't even know what this is. I'm just opening one of my bottles of whiskey that I got for my birthday, for my fiftieth birthday. Ockentoshin. <laughs> um, I don't even know how old it is, but it's single malt. I know that. It's from Glasgow. So, at least I'm going to try and open it. Uh, so this is going to be a fairly low-key, subdued return, then. Um. Ticket. Uh. I. I hope. Well, I guess so. But... Hello, by the way. <laughs> I didn't say hello. hello. We just kind of got into the meeting and then started faffing about. Well, we haven't actually talked to each other. No. I think since the last podcast, possibly. There we go. Mm. Mm. Oh, mm. multi. <laughs> I've got, I've got a measuring. Uh, I've got the measure thing here, but I'm reluctant to use it because it'll leave traces of whiskey in 
the measuring cup, which I believe is a waste of precious whiskey. So I'm just going to have a guess. Let's have a. Have you seen my um, personalised glass that uh, Uncle Carl got me for for my birthday? Yeah. It's. Uh, so. I'm holding it up to the camera for the YouTube video. I'm not. Did I actually upload to YouTube last time? Do you, have you noticed if it's on YouTube? Uh, I think you did. <laughs> I did put yeah, and it's got my name engraved on it. Look, nice. Yeah, yeah. I'll double check. Yeah, but before we start recording. Yeah, I um, I've been releasing my better call Pauls. Ah, that'll do. For now, I think I've got to be careful because uh, I'm teaching in the morning. Yeah, you did upload something. Excellent. Something. I yeah, I think I yeah, I've watched part of it. That's how I knew that the quality on my end is kind of shit. Oh. It's sounding a bit better today. Oh. I haven't had I haven't had a single so oh, where's your ma wa? Wa la wa wa wa. Whoa. I haven't had single malt in a long time well that's warming that's 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 there is fire in my cockles now oh it's warming the cockles i think you should see a doctor about that <laughs> do you think we're just gonna sit and chat for a couple of hours here um we are supposed to be talking about south africa but <laughs> yeah but i mean let, let's do that but let's let's just kind of Let's just have a catch up as well, and like, you know, I mean, I know you've done a lot of preparation, and I don't want to make that not worthwhile, but let let's keep it kind of relaxed as well. Um, I'm really worried actually that I'm starting to come across as a teacher now. <laughs> so please don't turn me into a knob. <laughs> I mean, you're already a knob, but. Yeah. I hardly view you as a figure well, of responsibility. I like to keep our listeners um, feeling amongst their own kind, you know. <laughs> um, Shout out to Tom. I never said it this time. Right, just I just want to point that out. I never said that. Did yeah, you but know, you implied it. Did you know Craig's had COVID, by the way? Oh, damn. Yeah, he came up to Scotland for... A uh, couple of weeks with the seventeen people, I think that he normally goes on holiday with, and went back. and He's had he's double vaccinated, and he's had it really bad as well. He said it's the worst thing that's ever hit him. So there's a story. Craig's one of our listeners. If other people don't know, he is a prominent something on the After Dark Network. <laughs> yes. Oh, we should shout out everyone that we can remember. Shout out to Daniel Livingston. Shout out to Pate. No, because this is getting dangerous now because I'm going to leave someone out and they'll feel neglected. Shout well, out if you Nick. leave someone out, that means that you're just saying they're not a knob. <laughs> I'm not just listing knobs here. That's not what you I said. You, you said that our listeners are knobs. <laughs> no, I... I did... Well, well, maybe I did. I don't know. I don't actually care. I couldn't give a flying fuck. Come on, should we get started? Okay. Um, should we do the intro? How do we do that? How do we do that?
Do, twice. do you remember what we're doing here? <laughs> Breaking borders, I believe. Yes. Uh, so this be episode five. Yes. Is it? Is that all? Yeah, I suppose it would be. Yep. Do you reckon we'll get through South Africa in one episode, or could it be a part one? Oh, no. I've only gone as far as around about 1870, a little bit further for some things because of the way that the article I was looking at was written. I know very little up to that point. I mean, to be honest, most of my... Yeah, let's get started, and I'll I'll, I'll enlighten you on that, uh, my limited knowledge at some point okay. thing. <laughs> Have you got music, by the way? Um, I've got... I've got Wikipedia ready. <laughs> I've got the national anthem lined up. That's all I used to do anyway. Get Wikipedia. Going no, with. you used to get like a few bits of music. Yeah, to but you've got the episode. Yeah, well, yeah, but I maybe the difference is I maybe had them open and tabs ready, but actually I've got used to giving presentations to classrooms full of teenagers at the moment skipping between a powerpoint and youtube trying to freeze a smart board and referee uh whatever's going on in the classroom at the same time <laughs> so i'm kind of winging it in my job now so <laughs> gonna wing it here as well it won't be any more professional less professional whatever it is okay uh, i'll trust you know what you're doing yeah i mean to, to be honest though i mean the vast majority of what what I can find out about South African music is. Uh, should we start the episode? Because it's this is kind of part sure. of the content. <laughs> okay. Hello, Internet. I am Fireball, and I'm the Orbiter. And did you notice I didn't interrupt? Because I'm becoming more wow. mature now. I'm a teacher. Anyway, thing. Uh, welcome. You did interrupt. You interrupted to... me. Part five, just then, well, uh, episode five of Breaking Borders. Now you're trying to ignore me. Um, if you've forgotten, because it's been a while since we've done one of these, uh, the idea of this podcast is to um, look at both the history and music of a given country at each episode. It was supposed to be a country per episode, but I think uh, I need so to piss far, already. All the ones we've... <laughs> No, sorry, so far, on. all the ones we've looked at needed two parts, and uh, this one will as well. Uh, we're looking at South Africa today. Yeah, I haven't got Toto in the playlist, but that's more of Africa in general, isn't it? Whereas Kilimanjaro is not in South Africa, is it? No, I think maybe in Tanzania. I do not know, though. <laughs> but South Africa, the country, as opposed to Southern Africa. Well, that's another thing. Uh, researching this, it's quite complicated oh. because... South Africa as a concept, much yeah. like Indonesia, is kind of only really a thing See, because colonial you, powers jammed a lot of different groups together. But how do you do like sort of breaking borders? The further back you go, the the less likely the border is to actually be there. It's kind of well, moving. Borders. We're going very far back today because um, Pangaea in South Africa. Well, not that far back. Um, <laughs> In South Africa is very important in terms of our understanding of human history as a whole. So we're going back about uh, three million years uh, at the start Ooh. of this. That's, and that, uh, that, that's nearly as long as I've been alive. Wow. And, uh, 
talking about like some of the earlier humans I mean, it, it's not the earliest humans uh, they were found in like more central africa like chad if you know where chad is but uh they're usually just looking over walls aren't they chad's I, I did not get this reference, but I don't know. It's maybe a dated thing. Chad's it used to be a graffiti thing. Um, you'd get like a a head kind of peering over a wall, and it'd be what no something. I'm sure I've told this story before. Have you not seen that meme? It's not. It's not really a meme. Seen, You've seen the picture of things with a nose hanging over a wall and some eyes peering over the top, and it goes what no something. No. no. There, there is an internet meme of chads but that's a different thing <laughs> yeah i used to draw one on my um jotter at school um with just like this weird looking creature and no wall in front of it going what no wall wow i know so witty and funny <laughs> i was i was once upon a time uh yes so kids <laughs> the idea of this is i'm very interested in countries around the world and sort of uh, I want to know a bit more about their history and you are very interested in music from various places and sort of diversifying what music you listen to. And mm -hmm. so the idea of this was to uh, explore the world through these two lenses. Um, and it, it's a lot of research uh, that I've done, but I'll try to skim over it and uh, discuss more rather than just give a lecture. You're quite clever, aren't you? You're getting into academic lingo, using like lenses and stuff. Uh, I, 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 unless I I've just forgotten. It's been such a long time since since I spoke to you. It's maybe I just forgot how how clever you are. I'm not sure whether to take that as a compliment, but sure. Oh, oh excuse me, I'm a contortioning. <laughs> uh, but yeah, generally how we would start this. Um, in the past would be to look at the current news from whatever country we're looking at mm. um so do you have anything because i know there's obviously cup 26 is a big thing at the moment do you have anything on how how south africa how willingly south africa have taken part in that and whether or not they're one of the countries that's kind of fully gone into it or because there's some countries that are being a bit Awkward, I haven't heard Australia much springs to mind and China about um, South Africa in particular in relation to COP26. I've mainly heard about I mean, it is of note because uh, they're part of a group of countries that are referred to as BRICS, which is okay. uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, which are kind of like developing world powers in a way yeah. i mean russia not really to be honest but mm. i think this is kind of an old distinction to sort of like distinguish between non-western powers but um, yeah well that's yeah yeah that there is that sort of this is all about decolonization, isn't it? Because I mean, we're just digressing a little bit. We're and one of the topics I have to teach is world music, and and that's actually a, a bit of a uh, kind of the trying to move away from using that term because it kind of implies that there is an us and them. It's like there's the classical Western traditions, and then there's everybody else all lumped in together, which is bollocks. You know, all music is world music. So, <clears throat> so that's the thing. Yeah. So like. I mean, looking at this as well, because we look at countries 
from all continents. Mm-hmm. We're not just looking at countries that are further away from like Scotland. Um, f- folk music is interesting wherever you go. And while like in Europe, at least, um, Western classical music is quite influential, there's very distinct cultures there that are very interesting to look into from a musical perspective. Indeed. The thing that I, I mean, I think it's more West African drumming that I've seen more of, but- um, I did some of that the other week, actually. It's tricky as fuck. Yeah, it's very (laughs) interesting as a percussionist because it's where a lot of the more complex ideas around percussion originated. And yeah, but there's no how traditional that developed kind of, into like there's no traditional percussion notation for that. It's like no. Anyway, that's not that's not South Africa, is it? But yeah, percussion's only relatively recently become a bigger part of the orchestra, I suppose. So yeah. I'll tell you what, it's very interesting to me. Again, I digress, but um, I was shown a video of a pipe band playing. You know, with the really high pitched. I don't know what they're called, snare drums or not, but the drums that are in pipe bands that are really highly highly strung snares if you like um and the notation that goes with it that's fucking complicated to play it's like yeah no <laughs> i'd have difficulty working out anyway back to south africa three million years yes. ago well uh we'll start with the current day news oh yeah uh i said this i think in the pre-bollocks oh, this isn't breaking bollocks but the pre-borders i suppose <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, that we I researched around about up to 1870. I again, a uh, caveat to the information in this episode it's mostly derived from Britannica articles, which might be quite biased towards uh Britain. Mm. I do not know about that specifically, so I try we'll try to keep that in mind as we go along, but um. That just can I say this is probably going to be a little skewed on the musical side unless we don't have any in this first episode and then put everything in the second episode because pretty much everything on the history of South African music is twentieth um, century and well beyond. the music you pick doesn't have to be related to the time we're talking about yeah I mean all I can really say about um, pre 20th century is that it's um uh, that that counts as kind of early records of music um in southern africa it mentions specifically not south africa but it indicates a fusion of cultural traditions which would be african european and asian so that might tie in with some of the history that you've got maybe as to why that might be uh but looking at current news so currently south africa is kind of in a I would say relatively dodgy political situation. I mean, I researched this somewhat in the past um, because for an essay... you can't do it in the future. Well, yeah. (laughs) Uh, For an English essay, like, further in the past, um, I'd been researching, uh, like, organisations that would be called terrorists by some, but also freedom fighters by others, which... Uh, Nelson's Mandela's um, ANC is quite important for, but also looking at like South Africa's modern situation and how political violence that was used against apartheid. Um, Did I tell you I've seen him speak in real life? I think so, yes. Yeah, I think it was 2000. um, And I think it was 
I think it was particularly a Mandela, I don't know, it was Freedom Day concert or something like that for South Africa in Trafalgar Square. REM were playing, but he, yeah, he came on and did a speech. He was looking, is he still alive? Oh, no. No, because he was looking really old then, but I know there was I'm a lot. Sure um, I know there was that kind of, I don't know what, what's behind it, but the conspiracy theory bollocks about the Mandela, uh, what do they call it? The Mandela effect. He died in 2013. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what that Mandela effect thing where that came from or how reliable it is you know it's kind of i think do you know what i was thinking about that earlier um just to uh kind of if nobody's if somebody hasn't heard of the mandela effect was it not like a thing where there were like vast swathes of people that believed that he'd actually died years and years ago um, well it was where they'd falsely remembered a fact yeah and uh, some people i mean it, it is an effect where people falsely remember things that yeah happened a different way uh, but that but sounds various, like the I internet mean, one of, now <laughs> one of the most common ones is um uh, the luke i am your father because that was yeah. put on mm. loads of t-shirts and stuff when the actual line is no i am your father but uh, you see it did occur to me that actually it's not actually it's not that um and like um shocking to think that people might have believed that because the number of times that we saw in the news about black people imprisoned in South Africa having died in custody um you know it would easily be mistaken I mean Biko was one of them wasn't he I don't know his first name but in the film uh, Cry- Steve Biko Steve Biko that's it yeah in the film um, Cry Freedom um, which is fantastic I shall be playing um the actual South African national anthem from the end credits of that. Um, and I'm going to hopefully share the screen because there's some quite moving statistics in that end screen about um, the reasons given for some of the deaths of black people in custody. Um, but uh, South Africa is still in a relatively politically unstable situation. I mean, it only really exited apartheid in the 90s um and there's still a lot of corruption uh political assassinations quite often um i mean just yeah so there's and i think this is a thing in quite a few uh like states in that region where bodyguards are required for um people who I can who can afford them I suppose and their children because people would otherwise perhaps kidnap them and ransom them because it's kind of not in a great situation economically particularly for black people in South Africa I think uh, white Afrikaners are probably in a better economic situation Mm. um the main things I've seen about South Africa recently are on COVID um yeah i mean I, I can't there's not a lot i can really a lot of what we're what i could say about south africa is really sort of late 20th century stuff it's not really current um i mean politically i don't know are they going are they having any kind of regression into not apartheid obviously but um obviously there are racial tensions there 
still. Um, one thing I was going to say was I found quite interesting was I I remember living through the breakup of apartheid and when it was actually in place, but I noticed uh, there were a lot of like after um, apartheid had finished, if you like, um, we started getting lots of adverts for South African uh, South Africa as a tourist destination, which we'd never had before. And I mean, that's that's possibly partly down to the fact that there was, uh, you know, an em- is it an embargo? Do they call it? Yeah, uh, a boycott embargo, that sort of thing. Yeah, but um, because, and that is something which I don't know if you would have known about this. That it's relatively controversial about Queen actually is that they played. I was a just looking it up. Yeah, South Africa, while a lot of bands were. Yeah, they were highly criticised boycotting. For um, I saw you frozen. <laughs> it says my internet connection is unstable. <laughs> Am I still there? Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, there was a, a lot of controversy about that. But then, you know, it's like you think but how much of that was... I mean, it was controversial because the Musicians' Union and pretty much the rest of the world were saying don't do anything in South Africa. But um, British Musicians' Union banned any of its members from performing in Sun City. Um, I don't know where Sun City is. Where is that? Um, but the United Nations, that's it. The United Nations had requested entertainers to boycott the country. Um, but I don't know, you know, obviously the, the British media just tore Freddie and Queen apart as much as they could at any given opportunity. So, it's kind of, I mean, obviously it was a controversial thing, but I think it was probably made out to be a lot worse kind of you know if they if they have a if they have an excuse to vilify someone they will do it and bring them down you know i mean it's something that's still relevant today especially as i mean it's controversial to say this probably but uh, with israel is arguably in a state of apartheid Mm. and interacting with israel and treating israel as legitimate is a political stance in itself yeah i suppose you've got to make your own mind up about where you draw the line on politics though um and i suppose the what i mean they played um the queen played south africa in 1985 i think during the uh the works tour um and I suppose you've got to think, well, how, how did they actually hold those concerts? Were they pretty much white people that were in attendance for that? Or was it open to everyone? You know, how 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 anti-apartheid was it in terms of, or was it just the usual at that time case of only white people being allowed to attend sort of thing? I don't actually know, but... I don't know myself, but... We'll probably get into that discussion a lot more in the second part of this because yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. this episode would be more about like the background to, well, really more the history of Southern Africa rather than South Africa as a country because it, it made from, I mean, it, it's a difficult thing to research because it's telling several histories at once, similar yeah. to Indonesia, yeah, where you're talking about the histories of several different groups which all happened to have been 
federated um which we'll hint at the end of this it's sort of where we're getting to the formation of south africa as one block yeah um i just want to correct myself it was 1984 but the tour carried on into 1985 do continue but yeah uh should we get started with the actual notes (laughs) yeah why not okay so hold on I'm holding on. So just a little bit of, sort of overview on South Africa as a whole uh, before we get into the history. Uh, so f- fairly obviously, it's the most southern country in Africa. Uh, so it was initially independent from the United Kingdom as the Union of South Africa in 1910, but its uh, democratization and the formation of how we'd see modern South Africa post-apartheid wouldn't really happen until uh, 1994. So a lot of the history of South Africa itself rather than Southern Africa would actually happen within your lifetime. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, you were talking about three million years ago. What were you kind of referencing yes. there? So, because it's, I mean, Africa largely is where early hominins which is the sort of broad group for humans and human-like things Mm. um is where these groups arose really i mean there's some theories about like groups in siberia but for the most part homo sapiens got its start in africa um and so they came hominins came to south africa about three million years ago there were some earlier in other parts of africa like uh, ticadensis in um uh, chad and i think tanzania is that a place that still exists ticadensis no ticadensis is a species of oh sorry i suppose (laughs) right okay uh, so, uh, South Africa is extremely ethnically, culturally, and linguistically diverse, uh, including ancestral groups like the Zulu, the Ko, and Xhosa people. I'm yeah. sorry if I get the pronunciations of these things wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, as well as white Afrikaners, mostly uh, British or Dutch descent, uh, as yeah. well as many ethnic Asians, which... Um, I mean, it's not necessarily the most historically accurate film, but we'll get into it a little bit, um, probably more in part two, uh, the likes of uh, Gandhi um, coming to South Africa. You've probably seen that in, I think the film's just called Gandhi. (laughs) It is. I mean, it's a brilliant film, but I still feel, I I now feel quite uncomfortable about, although he's a very good actor, um, about choosing a white actor to play the role of Gandhi. Yeah. Um, but sure. obviously it was made in the in the 80s, so it would have been far less a controversial issue. Um, oh, what's the guy's name that played him? Uh, ben Kingsley. That's it, Ben Kingsley, yeah. Um, and actually, and I always get these mixed up, it was Richard Attenborough, wasn't it? That... Uh yeah directed yes. it produced it directed it um so i mean i would think 
of anyone nowadays if Richard Attenborough was were to make something like that now I think from what I know of him he would probably be more than more likely than anyone else to actually choose authentic representation but back in the 80s it just wasn't really you know <laughs> which is weird it just seems like an alien kind of world now the 80s yeah that's a good thing you know uh so South Africa is still a popular travel destination you talked a little bit about like the holiday adverts you would have seen mm. it, it's a fairly newly industrialized um following apartheid um but given its position in the world geographically, its trading partners are quite far away from it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so uh, South Africa actually has three capitals, uh, which is a little bit unusual. Uh, so it has Pretoria, which is uh, its executive capital, where it's, uh, I think, president. Would it be president? Um, hold on. Uh, yeah, where its president would um, govern from. Uh, Cape Town, where its uh, legislators would sit, and uh, Bloemfontein, where its judiciary would sit. Now, I get—I always get these capes mixed up. Is that the Cape of Good Hope there? Because uh, I know there's Cape Horn, but is that not India? I'm not sure. And then there's another cape at the bottom of South America, isn't there? <laughs> Um, which I'm not sure which one that is. I mean, I could just look it up like you are, but, you know, I'm a lazy bastard, so I'll let you do it. The Cape of Good Hope is part of the Cape that um, Cape Town would be part of, but there's, there's it's the Cape Peninsula that, like, the Cape Colony was founded on. We'll get into mm -hmm. that um, when we get into the sort of colonial bit of, well, a, a fairly large colonial bit of South Africa's history. Yeah. Um, its largest city isn't actually one of its capitals. It's Johannesburg, which has about 5.6 million people in it, and its population as a whole is uh, 59.6 million, so a little bit smaller than the UK. That's a fucking um, big city. <laughs> I would. I mean, it's I would, smaller than London. Is it really? Oh, London's suppose, got about yeah. 10 million people. Did you not say 15.6 million though? Of uh, five point six. Yeah. Oh, five point six. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, I suppose that's the thing with cities, isn't there? That, that isn't it that they are pretty heavily packed. Um, it's uh, GDP is around three hundred and seventeen billion dollars, which would make it the thirty fifth biggest economy in the world. So it's up hmm. there with um, some fairly rich countries, but it's not the biggest economy. Yeah, because they um, did they not have um, a lot of uh, diamonds in South Africa? Yes, and that will become very important for like why um, Britain wanted it in particular um, mm. when we get more towards the end of this episode. But um, yes, uh, gold and diamonds, gold as well. Because I'm sure diamonds was that not like almost a manufactured. Um, what do you call it? Uh, not monopoly. Um, they're, they're a manufactured kind of valuable resource in the De Beers yes. thing. Yeah. Uh, basically, yeah, the De Beers company um, established a monopoly on it and created artificial scarcity. They used to yeah. be thought of as actually rare, but now, um, for example, zirconium is actually rarer than 
diamonds, but zirconium seen as like cheap diamonds. Yeah, yeah, because you get cubic zirconia um, rings that are that are cheaper than diamond rings, don't you? But as far as I know, they are actually rarer in terms of like minerals. Mm. Uh, so the currency South Africa use is the South African rand. Um, South Africa actually has eleven official languages. Uh, I just I can't th- do you know thinking about South Africa I all I can think of in my head is the guy out of um, Lethal Weapon have you seen Lethal Weapon uh no no there's a, there's a South African white South African politician in that and uh, I mean it's it's a great film but it's probably very dated and it's got what's his name in it who's a bit of a cunt um Mel Gibson <laughs> oh god I mean yeah, to no. <laughs> to be to be fair at that point um, it wasn't widely known how much of a cunt he is, but um, he, he played he played a blinder in that role. Um, but I mean, he played a corrupt cop basically. So um, you know, it was probably typecasting. But go, go on, please continue. Uh, yeah. So the official languages are um, English, um, Isi Zulu, uh, Isi Josa. Afrikaans, which is a sort of, it's like a sister language to Dutch. It's right. very similar to Dutch, uh, or a daughter language to Dutch, I suppose, because it's derived from Dutch. Mm. Uh, Sepedi, which is related to the Pedi people, which we'll get into. Uh, Setswana, which is, um, I assume, related to the people of Botswana, which is to the north of South Africa. Uh, Sesopho, which is related to uh, Lesopho, which is an enclave country, basically... Ah. Now I'm pretty sure that's pronounced Lesotho. I think. Oh, I know it's, it? okay. I, I, I'm, I, I'm, it's just I've heard it pronounced like that in um, things like Cry Freedom and you know, possibly. Um, but yeah, that's spelled L E S O T H O. Is it? Uh, yes. Is that um, like a really small country? Yeah, it's a country entirely surrounded by South Africa. Right. And we'll get into the reasons for that. Um, yeah. The, well, there is there is a, a uh, an important plot point to do with Lesotho in the film um, Cry Freedom about the journalist's escape from South Africa. Um, yeah. By a plane, sort of thing. But it's a great film. Highly recommend seeing that. Have you seen that? Uh, no. No. Very good. So um Jitsonga uh C Swati, which I believe is related to um formerly called Swaziland, uh now called uh Eswatini, uh which is uh it's almost an enclave country as well as well, but it's um situated between South Africa and Mozambique. Uh if you have any idea about that. I mean you can look at a map to help her. Mm. Uh, Tushi Venda and uh, Isi Ndebele. Uh, the Ndebele people are mainly found in Zimbabwe nowadays, which we'll get into the reasons for that. Um, and there's also a, a lot more languages that have some sort of special status. These are just the official ones. Mm. So very linguistically diverse. It's it, 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 There are some parallels to Indonesia in a way. Um So the largest religion is Christianity, um, as you might expect. Uh, So there's 78% Christianity, about uh, 58% uh, Protestants within that. Uh, 
the next most popular religion is actually no religion. Atheism is about 11% of the country. And then you have more traditional um, African faiths, I suppose, based on traditional religions, uh, which make up about 4%. What, what, can, what, what era are you talking about at the moment? Is this now? This is currently, yes. Currently, yeah. Because I, I've got a feeling it's going to be really difficult. Obviously, we're looking at the history of the country, but I, I feel like that lens of the present is really, and, and the recent past, is going to be really difficult to stay away from because I'm constantly looking at stuff now. I was thinking, you know, it's said about, uh, recommended the film Cry Freedom. Um, that was 1987. And I've just been looking it up. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure, you know, you, you can't deny that the role of art in the pressure on South Africa to emerge from apartheid was was really big, you know. Um, I'm just looking at a sign from apartheid, and it's really, for use by white persons, these public premises and the amenities thereof have been reserved for the exclusive use of white persons by order of the provincial secretary. You just think, like, you know, that was from 1948, wasn't it? apartheid came in uh i mean a varied part i mean africans were never really treated as equal um but i'll allow you to continue arguably still (laughs) aren't today and and then very emotional um, about this because i lived through some of it so (laughs) fair um then you got islam and hinduism Mm. which presumably more from like um asian influences um right two percent uh, and one percent of the religions respectively uh, its system of government is a unitary dominant party parliamentary republic i'll explain what that means unitary okay. basically means it's not split into different states like germany or the united states uh, dominant party parliamentary kind of works like the uk would mm. um, where the head of state is determined by the party with the most seats uh public that just means it's not a monarchy basically and it also has an executive presidency um so it's unusual uh that it has a presidency rather than a prime minister given its system of government mm. uh, because it this is only really found in south africa itself a few other states in southern africa i think botswana was one of them and um, some Pacific Islands nations. Pacific Islands? Yes. That's like the other side of the planet. Yeah, but it's, 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 it's an unusual form of government. Oh, I see, I see really. what you mean, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, its head of state, which you may have seen in the news, is uh, Cyril Ramaphosa. Cyril? <laughs> Sorry, I just said this seems like a very silly name. Cyril? <laughs> I think it's a European name. Um, yeah, I mean we've had but... we've had um, politic. I know there's a politician called Cyril Smith who was very large. In the, I mean, I I don't think Ramaphosa is, century. but I think the first name tend to be European influenced. Uh, mm. Its ruling party right now is the uh, African National Congress or ANC. They are sort of centre left and focused on African nationalism. Uh, as well as generally social democracy, democratic socialism. They're kind of like a Labour Party. This is the party that uh, Nelson Mandela was a part of. Yeah. Uh, so its flag is actually one of the most colourful in the world. Um, if you 
would like to look at it. Um, nice the, look. You've got black, green, and yellow, and these are uh, pan-Africanist colors, which you can also see on the Jamaican flag. Uh, and the idea of the flag is that these colors actually spear into the Dutch flag, ah, which is yes. um, red, white, and blue. Oh, that's uh, not controversial, I would say, but symbolic, should we say? Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it, I really like the symbolism on this flag. It's mm. one of, it's a really nice flag and I think it's quite distinct. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, onto the history, because we're getting quite into this now. Um, yes. So we have some of the earliest ancestors of modern humans, which are uh, known as uh, Australopithecines. You may have heard of these. Um, <laughs> You may have. Uh, this means southern Dingle. apes. Uh, so right. these lived entirely in southern Africa and neighboring countries. Mm. Uh, so we have uh, some early Stone Age sites in South Africa that are connected to Homo erectus. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh huh. I've just watched that uh, episode of Friends. Sorry to mention a, a crap sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm nearly on season. I'm just starting season 10. Sorry, do carry on. Carry on. <laughs> so this is the early history section, which, by the way, uh, we're going from 3 million BCE or BC to quite far ahead, uh, 1488 CE or AD, mm. uh, because there's not a huge amount of information like written. So a lot of this is coming from archaeological evidence. Right. Anyway, yes. So at these sites, we have like simple modified stones, axes, tools, artifacts that are intended for butchering, scraping height, and digging for plants. Uh, a lot of these are open camps that would have been by lakes or rivers, and some of these are sheltered by rocks. Um, but over millions of years, um, we don't really have any major changes in technology. Uh, However, over this time, we see physiological changes. We see actual evolution occurring, giving rise to the early Homo sapiens around 500,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we see more like uh, rapid cultural evolution occurring around 200,000 years ago, uh, and where we get stone flakes and blades, which can be used for scraping, can be made into spear points and more complex complex tools which becomes the middle stone age or the mesolithic i believe it's called uh so like uh hunting bands would live in open camps under rock overhangs or hunting antelope zebras and trying to avoid bigger animals such as elephants and rhinoceros they would also eat a lot of um, seabirds and marine mammals like dolphins um as well as turtle and ostrich eggs apparently uh-huh also in south africa we see the first evidence of shellfish being eaten by humans is this all from um, like sort of fossil remains that have been analyzed um, yeah archaeological evidence yeah. I, I don't know if you could really call them no, fossils no. I was, as I soon as i said they're... that i thought that's the wrong word but you know what i mean they, they might have been fossilized i'm not sure yeah 
And we see this first sort of anatomically modern humans um, in South Africa in the Clazes River mouth. Uh, and that's about 115,000 years ago. That's a big, uh, a big jump from 3 million. Yeah, well, there's... That's not a complaint. Not a but... great deal of information here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, let me know when you're coming up to a convenient point for a little bit of music. Sure. Okay, so around 40,000 years ago, we see our first more finely worked stone implements, and these are called oh, microliths. Yes, I, I remember it well. <laughs> uh, so microliths became a lot, basically small rocks, or yeah. small stones is what that means. Uh, and this is known as late Stone Age. Is that what lith stands for? Yeah, roughly. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting that because like lithography obviously is to do with um, sort of, I suppose it's about writing on stone originally, isn't it? Lithography. Presumably, yes. Yeah, yes. with the Egyptians and stuff. Carry on. Uh, so we actually have from this time plant food preserved, which is... Uh, we can't really have that from further back, but we know at least at this time they, early, they were early, eating plants. Early veganism? Well, I mean, humans have been omnivores for, <laughs> I think, as long as humans have been I around. <laughs> He's not vegan. Uh, You're telling me off. So animals would have also been trapped and hunted with spears and arrows and stuff at this time. And bands would have actually moved with seasons to like go to various different areas that would be better for hunting different times of year Bands. do you mean like sort of tribal kind of um... yeah the i think the article that i was looking at tries to avoid the word tribe right because yeah. it kind of has some connotations i guess connotations yeah for some people which is ridiculous but go on <laughs> And at this time, so rock overhangs would have been used for shelter, but we see windbreaks actually being constructed at this time uh, when <laughs> Sorry, they weren't just, available. So you said that, I was thinking breaking I, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> please, please, just don't wait. Just carry on when I come up okay. with shit like that. <laughs> we see, uh, so we've got paintings and engravings on the shelter... Uh, on the walls of different shelters. Mm. Uh, and so this was um, made... Anything um, rude. <laughs> this is made from for about 25,000 years. Um, and th this was believed to be to do with um, Sorry. like shamans who would have been like responsible for the well-being well, of... That's Bands. interesting because, um, I mean, I've heard of shamans before, but only in the context of um, North American Indians. There if would be the sort term. of um, Native American people that would have been responsible for medicine in a way, or at least is that just before, early before, forms of medicine. Before we continue, do you know, because I think you're more um, switched on with this sort of thing than me, but... Uh, is that uh, an incorrect term to use, North American Indians? Is it Native Americans? Is that the correct terminology? Um, see, this is a thing uh, I think using I know, I, uh, I know Native Americans... I know Red Indians would be incorrect, is, wouldn't it? Well, using Native Americans is very broad, is the thing, because that would also yeah. encompass 
um, indigenous peoples in South America, right. a, a wide range of people there. And so I yeah. think generally people that are in Canada and the US would sometimes use the term Indians, even though that's incorrect. Yeah, um, I wonder where to that distinguish came from. that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, largely from, I think the story is mainly from Christopher Columbus being an idiot and thinking yeah. that the US was India. Okay. But I don't know how correct that story actually is. Yeah. I, a thing about these paintings and engravings, um, the people that originally found them thought they would actually have been from uh, Phoenicians or something coming down okay. to South Africa and um, writing things, but it is actually probably native africans pretty long journey that <laughs> well i mean it, the thing is with the age of the paintings uh they're a lot older than the phoenicians all oh, right i okay. think it yeah, would yeah. partially just be um this thing of white people not believing that people at the time would have been capable of complex art right yeah in africa and so believing, oh, the Phoenicians, which are from like Lebanon, would need to come down that way to I mean, have that, this evidence. Here. That kind of arrogance is and 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 sort of narrow vision of art is probably um I mean, I wonder if that's a kind of a, a belief that art is a higher kind of intelligent kind of activity, whereas actually it's more of an innate human trait rather than something that you elevate to as you kind of I mean it represents an interesting point in human history where art is around. I mean, it's not yeah. the earliest art found, but it is um, noteworthy for the region. Um, anyway, so around 2000 years ago, so we're getting to around about the year zero. Well, there's not really a year zero, but, you know, um, agriculture would have come to South Africa. So a little bit later than most of the world's, or at least most of the old world. Would that uh, imply that there's, if not a physical presence of at least an influence from like ancient um, sort of Roman civilization kind of area? Because they, they brought agriculture to a lot of places, didn't they? Like with uh, well, you stuff. have the Sahara there, and then you have a lot more distance to cover to get to South Africa. So yeah, yeah, it, it probably would have been these things kind more of by sea through the Indian Ocean. I would think, like from Arabia. Yeah, yeah, because there's a lot more India. ancient civilizations than that sort of realm, and that sort of Middle East kind of area. Well, like we were talking about in Indonesia episodes, that um, Madagascar was actually settled by people from Indonesia. Mm. Um, so perhaps from Indonesia, wherever, but wouldn't have really been related to romans at all or really anything in europe at this point no it's weird isn't it because all of this kind of pro progress of civilization seems to have blossomed and and bloomed in the middle and far east a lot long a, a long time before it did in in the western sort of hemisphere and yet something seems to have um not slowed it down but western sort of civilization seems to have overtaken i wonder what the catalyst was there um uh, there'll be various theories on that i mean it it's sort of a thing where i think that's possibly a also a perspective thing where like yeah 
I mean, it's also just the point we are at now in history. For example, China will probably become a lot more powerful in the future, and we're sort of at a turning point with that, where a lot of yeah. the old empires in Europe have now collapsed and aren't as powerful as they used to be. Mm, mm. And so now you have this uh, dick measuring contest with the US and China. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so we start seeing agriculture in South Africa with uh, domesticated animals, plants, and um, from this we see more people because mm. more food and uh, more people leads to more complex political structures. Can we have some music yet? Uh, sure. We've I've got to figure exited out the Stone Age roughly. So, well, I uh, I need to. Um, I'm going to play something from a, a, an act that I have seen. This is like in no way organised or anything. It's just I'm going to play random bits of South African music. But um, yeah, I've seen this group um, perform. I think twice actually. I'm sure I saw them at Glastonbury and also at that Trafalgar Square concert. Um, Lady Smith Black Mambazo. I don't know if you've heard of them. No. They're an a cappella South African group. Um, I'm just trying to work out if I can share my screen with you because that way the music will end up on the thingy, Bob, won't it? Um, how'd you do it? Share. Ooh, I can share that one. Share. And then do this. Does that work? Now let's have some sound. Can you hear that? Uh, no. I think you need to share sound specifically when sharing it. Okay, so I'm gonna. Uh, uh, Keep talking for a minute, and I'm gonna see if I can work this out. I'll move on to the other point while you're sorting that out. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so a lot of the agriculture would have been based around um, basically herding sheep, uh, which possibly started like in Botswana and then moved south. Um, but it's not actually sure whether um, the groups that had previously been hunter-gatherers would have actually really taken up the new ways of life. And the first farmers in South Africa had knowledge of ironworking, and so this is where sort of the Iron Age starts, if you've heard of that, which is kind of... Can you hear it? <laughs> yep. Sorry about that. Oh, hang on. <laughs> this is totally slick. That worked though, did it? Yes. Cool. Um, yeah, actually, I mean, I remember seeing them and they are really fascinating to see live. It's like really, really good quality acapella stuff. Um, 
And I'm pretty sure it might be them actually that are singing the version of the national anthem that I've got from the end of Cry Freedom. Possibly. So, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you in the middle of something. Do you have like anything on like the history of like acapella music or anything in Zohar? Oh, right. Okay. Um, well, uh, hang on. Let me just. I imagine it would have been common at this time, even. Um... I shall have a look, see what I can find. Um, at this time, being when? Around about 280. Yeah, Lady Smith Black Mambazo weren't around then. Obviously. <laughs> no, but. The sort of they were formed in um, 1960, apparently. But um... right, okay. So uh, they were formed by a guy called Joseph Shabalala um, because of a series of dreams that he had in 60, 1964, which he heard certain Isikathamaya harmonies, which is basically the traditional music of the Zulu people. Um, oh. So yeah, at, at this point, because quite similar to Indonesia, there would be relatively small groups of mm. people. The Zulu hadn't actually formed. Right, okay. Um, it was only really under pressure from invasions that people united together and got more power. Yeah. Um, but at this point, you mainly had villages that were pretty small and... Mm not really significant enough to say much about them. Um, but, right, so it, as the Iron Age progresses, uh, we see new people arriving in South Africa from East Africa. So these are mainly I'm, Bantu... What? I, I, it's just that I'm kind of learning more... Um than just national history of different places here but the, the iron age remind me where whereabouts in history are we at the moment uh sort of around the, the turn from bc to ad right okay cool uh i mean i think the iron age began earlier in other parts of the world but for yeah. southern africa this is the sort of time that that would have started really it kind of marks where I think mostly where hold on I'll I'll see what the definition presumably the Romans would have existed in the Iron Age yeah presumably the difference between the Bronze Age and the Iron Age is to do with the technology that was available to extract particular metals is that right uh yeah I suppose so yeah so in um Italy for example the Iron Age begins uh round about 1000 bc wow i had no idea tony stark had been around that long um but in africa <laughs> i just saw some tumbleweed drive drive past roll past well africa it, it has uh i assume in northern africa like in egypt it would have started around about 2000 bc but like down in southern africa probably around even 500 AD, so quite a range of times that this would have even started. Mm. Um, but it, it, it's generally, I think, when people talk about this, is 
talks about like what happened after the Bronze Age collapse, which sort of happened largely in like the Middle East, Anatolia, that sort of region. Yeah. Um, around about 1200 BC. Right. Um, but yeah, it'll be to do with the way that iron could be produced and the way different tools could be produced. But yeah, yeah. Because of the farmers that were coming into South Africa, this is really where the Iron Age began for them. Mm. Anyway, yes. So the people coming in from East Africa were Bantu speaking peoples, and the majority of South Africa's population and languages today are part of the Bantu language group. Yeah. Uh, and where so most of South Africa's population would be descended from these peoples that were uh, migrating. Mm, mm. Yeah, I do recognize that name. Is that, I mean, what is that what you're talking about with the bands? I mean, sort of avoiding the, the, the term tribes, but I do recognize Bantu um, as something mentioned quite a lot in Cry Freedom about a particular kind of, um, well, there were classifications of sort of um places in society weren't they like the whites were the regarded as the highest level if you like and there were i think it said um sort of asians um as being sort of next down asians and indians bantu peoples are a group of around 400 million people yeah but they were regarded um, in apartheid really, times as the lowest of the low, if you like. Like sub-Saharan African people, most of sub-Saharan Africa contains a significant amount of Bantu people. Yeah, yeah. Um, which are various ethnic groups in different places, um, sometimes the majority, sometimes a minority. So the more the um, more we do of this, the less I understand racism. That's good, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just makes no sense. But it's power, isn't it? It's political power, mm. is what it's about. So uh, where agriculture was relatively successful, uh, the villages uh, were around of like a few hundred people at this point, and we saw like some trade between different groups of farmers. Um, as well as specializations into various things such as salt making um actually that's mentioned in um in gandhi um that's one of the things he does he walks across an entire continent uh, i think it, i think it's india he walks across india to to make salt basically when he arrives at the sea he makes salt a, a, as a symbolic gesture if you like because i think that was something that the British had a monopoly over was production of salt. And I think it was illegal for anyone else to produce salt at that time. And it was kind of seen as a, as a symbol of independence that, that he actually made salt, you know, but carry yeah. on. That's India. Uh, and so um, we see some like um, evidence of uh, Art progressing with like pottery, ceramic heads being found um, around about like 600 AD. And um, so, right, so around about 1000 AD, we begin to see people from villages moving to like, because they'd previously been in like river valleys and in fairly like low lying areas. 
so like mm. the coast river valleys that sort of thing for mm. some reason they seem to move to like grass highlands um people don't really know if this is because they were invaded or whether they had some sort of new knowledge that meant they could go to the highlands or something but right uh and so in these new villages were being constructed of stone and so this came with other changes in behavior which meant that cattle uh became quite economically important in these villages and so um around about this time arab traders began to settle the coast of tanzania and mozambique and so trade from this reached to south africa um which meant the economic systems and the social systems got more complex and so we also have some of the first urban centers in south africa at this time uh with uh mapungubwe which is a town of around ten thousand people which doesn't seem like that much to us nowadays where like a relatively decent sized town would be 10,000 people but where we have like these huge cities nowadays yeah. but at the time that was quite significant I bet yeah and unsurprisingly in these settlements people were separated into different classes uh, with um, elites living on hilltops <laughs> and being buried with certain goods while commoners would have lived in low-lying areas uh, yeah. However, um, these settlements became abandoned around 1200 um, when the Arab trade routes were being taken over by the Great Zimbabwe to the north. Right. I won't yeah. really go into what the Great Zimbabwe was here um, no. because it'll be a lot more of interest when we talk about Zimbabwe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very significant to the region and African history as a whole. Mm, um, mm. And also the discussion with that about um, white archaeologists um, dismissing it is right. uh, okay. quite interesting. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. if you want to put on another piece of music, I've separated this into a different stage where we get to the colonial age. Okay. Well, I'll see if I can manage to share this. Um, this is um, something called Marabi. Um, it's actually being played by um, jazz at the Lincoln Center's Jazz Academy. It's a style of music found in South Africa that serves both as a style of jazz and also an underpinning to many of the styles of South African jazz. Um, so basically, in the early 20th century, um, there were governmental restrictions on black people, um, including a nightly curfew, um, which kept the nightlife in Johannesburg. Um yeah, Johannesburg was a nightly curfew. So Marabi was a style from the slums of Johannesburg, and it was an early popular music of the townships and urban centres of South Africa. So let's see if I can do this. Uh, and we're doing that one there. You are called Uhadi, a band from Johannesburg, South Africa. 
Oh. Oh, hang on, this isn't music. There we go. It's buffering. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I noticed. I bet they're... But that drummer feels a bit out of place. He's got a flugel horn. <laughs> I just uh, sorry, sorry. Can you hear me when uh, when that's on? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was just looking at that and thinking they're playing it on a Steinway grand piano. There's no way that would have happened in Johannesburg when it was kind of coming up. There would have been in. I mean, I, I struggled to find a piano, I expect, but yeah, jazz is ace. <laughs> but um, yeah, so there you go. That's Marabi. Nice. Anyway, great. So onto the colonial age, which begins around 1488, uh, when uh, Portuguese ships uh, begin to round the Cape of Good Hope, which we mentioned earlier. I wasn't uh, expecting that. I was expecting Dutch first. No, the well, we went over this with uh, our episode on Portugal. Yeah, they, yeah, was yeah. One of the first to sort of pioneer these navigation techniques. Yeah. Uh, and so they began to. Sorry, I feel, down. I feel like I just got told off. We went no, over no, no, this. It's fine. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I, I remember now. But it, it, it definitely intersects with Portuguese history that we've looked at a fair mm. amount. Yeah. Um, I mean, in a way, also with Indonesian history, because. Um, Portuguese, Dutch, and the British are all very involved here. Yeah. Mm. And so, yes, uh, the Portuguese came around wanting to get a share of, like, the Arab trade with um, China, India, the East Indies. Uh, so th this would have been the sort of first point of contact with South Africa and Europe. Uh, and so over the years, many ships would have passed by South Africa, but very little contact would have been made, um, except for like shipwrecked survivors who wanted to make their way to Portuguese colonies in Mozambique and I presume possibly Angola, but that's a bit further north. Yeah. However, uh, the British and Dutch begin challenging Portuguese control of the sea route round South Africa in the 1600s. And so the British set up a relatively short-lived settlement at Table Bay in 1620, and this was followed by the Dutch in 1652, when the Dutch East India Company sets up a small garrison under Table Mountain, which would supply their ships coming through this area. 
However, the Dutch East India Company, which we looked at a fair amount, um, really just wanted to maintain a minimal presence here because uh, it costs money to set up an outpost like this. Mm. Um, however, they had set up farms to support it, and so they ended up granting land to some of their men around about 1657. Um, initially, the Dutch East Indian Company did not want the native Co people or Co Co uh, to be enslaved, and, but um, instead they were bringing in slaves um, that had been taken from other areas in Western East Africa as well as India and Malaysia. Mm. So they weren't enslaving the native people at this point, but they were still very much participating in uh, horrible slavery practices. As you do. Uh, uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so colonial influence began to grow from this. Uh, so they were bringing in more and more settlers and slaves to uh, grow wheat, tend uh, to vineyards, that sort of thing. I just want to... See, this this whole sort of talk that we have regularly about the whole kind of slavery um, phenomena, nun, phenomenon, phenomena thing, do, 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 do. Um, the thing, uh, it, it just seems like, you know, I'm thinking to myself, did nobody at some at any point just sort of think, hang on, what we're doing is wrong here? But it's, see what, what's, um, and I, I think I mentioned it sometimes, I'm reading the early marvel comics at the moment and you just kind of tr it's trying to put yourself in the same headspace that they were in in that growing up in that world because there's comic strips that have got not just really sexist stuff but there's black people um and um far eastern people portrayed in some of these early marvel comics captain america stuff and namor submariner stuff and they're kind of drawn in a really disturbingly monkey-like way, you know, with with just think, to look like humanized monkeys, and it's like, how how was how was anyone comfortable with that at the time? But then that's possibly how white society saw black people. Then it's just I think, bizarre. and this is sort of, I mean, it, it's sort of where you can see with the Dutch East India Company is that, I mean, racism, I mean, slavery existed in the ancient world, but it wasn't based along lines of race. Um, however, as we get to colonial times, um, basically racism is kind of a product of, I would say sort of economic necessity in a way, but not really necessity because it's not necessary to exploit people, but it, it there was an empirical race going profits. on, wasn't there? Yeah. To to see certain people as less than human, it allowed you to have a very cheap labor or not have to pay for labor at all. Uh, was that exploitation which, of, of resources, literally human resources? Yeah. Basically seeing them, seeing certain peoples as less than human uh, and teaching that and propagandizing that to people on the basis of it will make us money kind of developed our modern conception of racism. 
and the economy that we still suffer from. Yeah. <laughs> exploitation of capitalism. Yeah. I mean, capitalism is based on exploitation of resources, both material and human resources. And, and it's yet. still kind of based on seeing certain people as worth less than other people. And yet we still have a situation where people are having to protest that we need system change. Yeah, well, it's not the most obvious thing when there's vested interests involved. Yeah. Sorry, do continue. <laughs> so um, in the early years of Dutch settlement, uh, so the pastoralists that would have been herding sheep traded with the Dutch. Um, however, the Dutch began demanding more and more cattle and sheep from the pastoralists, and they would give them alcohol, tobacco, and various... like All, all the stuff that helps you thrive. <laughs> um, basically, they were demanding, you know, more practically useful resources, I guess, in exchange for valuable resources, uh, which caused the co to become a lot more wary of the Dutch, understandably. Mm. And so in uh, 1713, a lot of uh, co communities were becoming ravaged with smallpox. And at the same time, um, colonial pastoralists, Dutch um, shepherds, basically, uh, boroughs, also known as trek boers, uh, began to move inland. Was that B O E R? Yes. Yes. Yeah. You've probably heard of the like the Boer Wars and stuff. Yes. Yeah, that's where I've heard it from. Yeah. And so, uh, co chiefdoms were decimated by well, both this smallpox epidemic and um, basically being moved out of their own lands by rival shepherds i suppose mm. um they were becoming decimated by the end of the 16th century the wait the 16th century no the 18th century the 18th century yes That's um, 1700s yeah yes yeah. <laughs> uh with a lot of people dying or being reduced to serfdom on dutch colonial farms uh Serfdom's not quite slavery, but it's not. No, well, I was just thinking, trying to kind of above it, trying to. Uh, I don't know the exact sort of time periods we're talking about, but there was that whole sort of Lord of the Manor serfdom thing going on in in Britain. Um, don't know if that was yeah. around about the same time or. It's kind of a remnant of the feudal systems that were sort of dying out at the time. Yeah. Uh, but so we have the San, which are small bands of hunter gatherers who were being pushed back by um, the Dutch, basically, mm. uh, which forced them into a difficult position, basically, economically. Uh, they began raiding cattle from the Dutch, which the Dutch, uh, and this is difficult to talk about in a very factual way, but the Dutch essentially tried to use this cattle raiding to justify in Britannica's words systematic eradication so ethnic uh, cleansing yeah the men were slaughtered and the women and children were forced into servitude for uh, 
Dutch colonials. Yeah. I'm sure Pate won't take it personally if you're just reflecting the history. Because, I mean, we've got just as no, much No, it's in more to, the... <laughs> to it, it's of. difficult to talk about this in human terms when you're going through the history of this, when th- yeah. this is effectively genocide. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm sort of thinking, in some ways I'm thinking, obviously... Um, in a lot of ways, civilization has come a long way, and thank goodness we don't behave like that nowadays. But in some places, they do. Yeah, there's genocide going on right now in the world in Myanmar, mm. arguably against the Uyghurs in China. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean f- fuck knows what's happening on the border between Belarus and Poland at the moment. I don't know if you've seen that in the news. I know it belongs in the current affairs section, but uh, that that wouldn't fall under genocide, but. No, but there's clear sort of human rights kind of violations going on all the time. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, it's easy for me to sort of, it's easy, I think, for anyone to assume that because we're in a comfortable place in society relatively, that society has moved on and improved, whereas actually we're we're just shielded from the worst of it from where we are. I suppose so. Um, Czech Boroughs uh, continued to expand northward from the Cape Colony uh, where various African farming villages had been for many generations and so by the end of this century uh, the western part of South Africa was basically completely dominated by colonial forces and so Cape Town began to develop into a major urban centre uh, it would take time to reach the size of the previous uh, Mapungubwe that we discussed, the town of about 10,000 people. That's easy for you to say. But uh, the town and colony were basically supported by slaves. They wouldn't exist without slaves. And these were beginning to outnumber their owners, as it were, significantly. Um. And so from 1770 onwards, uh, South Africa was becoming more integrated into a global capitalist economy. Trek boroughs continued to expand eastward, where they uh, collided with farming-based societies. And these societies weren't really able to unite to fight against the Europeans at this time. Must be, I mean, I'm sort of. This is obviously trivialising in a huge way, but I'm imagining that your kind of um, perspective on this is quite different, having played so much civilization. Um, because uh, you kind of, I I know it's not real life, but there are aspects of civilization as a video game that are um, kind of. I mean, I'm thinking about you know you're saying about sort of um, feeding into a global capitalist kind of regime, if you like. Um, it's interesting to think about how that all kind of naturally not fell into place, but kind of developed as civil as yeah, individual civilizations were kind of rising and developing and, and that kind of global system kind of just emerged. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it was kind of a result of very deliberate efforts by things like the Dutch East India company to make more money. Which yeah, a very capitalist thing. Yeah. But anyway, um, so in response to these invasions from the Trek boroughs, a lot of farming communities uh, 
began to sort of um, band together into sister states. Okay. Uh, which is a massive leap ahead of like the scale of um, sort of groupings here and mm. also military capacity here. Right. So these include um, the Pedi and the Swazi, who are in the High Veld. You, and there's a lot of geographic reasons that I'll reference here that you probably won't have the best idea of. So I'll. Well, I don't know if it exists anymore, but I've heard of Swaziland. Was that something that doesn't yeah. exist anymore? Well, it's now called Eswatini, but yes. East what? Uh, Eswatini or Eswatini. All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the it was that was in 2019. The king changed it to be more in line with the actual traditional uh, African name for it, rather than the European name for it. Okay. Yeah. Um, the Zulu, which you probably heard of, uh, which is south of the Pongola River, mm. and the Sofo or the Sutu um, to the east of the Caledon River. Uh, where modern day uh, Lesotho is, mm. and the Gaza in the lower Limpopo River, mm -hmm. and the Ndebele in present day Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. Okay, which another. Am Sorry. I correct in thinking that Zimbabwe used to be called Rhodesia? Yes, we'll probably get more into that in the second yeah. episode because I did yeah, see. Yeah something mentioning John Cecil Rhodes about like the De Beers Diamond yeah. Corporation later on. But yeah, yeah. Slaves in European colonies were treated very harshly. Um, the punishment for assaulting a European was death by impalement. That seems quite, a bit harsh. Yeah, <laughs> quite brutal, quite what we would probably see as archaic forms of punishment. Yeah. Uh, but this was the way that I suppose especially were controlled. Especially considering that, let's face it, it's likely that if a white person claimed that you'd assaulted them as a black person, that they're going to be believed in this yeah, situation. Yeah, someone could make up this completely and th there'd be no real recourse there. Yeah. No justice, just brutal treatment. Yeah. Uh, the escaped slaves um, formed things called maroons. These are small communities, um, at, but others fled further inland, where Africans were still were still held some power at least. Yeah. Uh, as the settler population actually rose in the Cape Colony. Uh, the Dutch began to actually enslave co-people to run their farms, which they previously said they didn't really want to do. But there's a big sort of theme here of like labor shortages, which the mm. colonial response to is force Africans to do it. Yeah. Mm. Um, because that's cheaper. Yeah. So the code that actually managed to escape the Dutch capturing them uh, joined uh, Josa groups, um, and this formed like a major counteroffensive to colonial forces, which began in late 1799 and finished in 1801. 
uh, slave rebellion started in the outskirts of Cape Town uh, in 1808 and 1825. Uh, the Dutch were refusing to grant uh, citizenship to colored people who, mm. uh, in this context, means people whose parents were a mix of European and co-people. Uh, this created a new class of people who were known as uh, Basters. I don't know if that's related to bastards at all. Seems quite familiar. Um, and so many of these bastards uh, fled to the north to join co-groups, uh, such as the Cora. They formed uh, basically commando states, which existed under warlords with uh, various families uh, called the Blum, Cock, and Barons. <laughs> these, okay. these are like fairly normal Dutch surnames, but yeah, yeah. Cock mm-hmm. sounds particularly funny oh. to us. <laughs> uh, so by the 1790s, these uh, warlord states were trading with um, African communities, but also raiding them. Um, so for self-defense, these Af- native African communities um, began to form larger and larger groups and wanted to compete to control the trade that was going to the Cape Colony and east to Mozambique. Now, mm. Portuguese, French, British, American even, and Arab uh, traders were trading various things such as beads, cloth, brass, alcohol, weapons as well, in exchange for ivory, slaves, and gold, uh, which meant that warlord states became basically very specialized into hunting elephants for ivory and hunting down slaves. Do you know, I mean, that makes me think, obviously, elephants um, and ivory trade and stuff like that has been a massive problem. But you wonder how... um, back before the ivory trade how widespread uh you know just how many elephants there were around basically <laughs> you know you can just imagine just going out into the yeah it, it's definitely massively declined basically because of a system based on this idea have been a, that you could just keep exploiting these resources there, there must have been a time when there were just like them. just like herds and herds of elephants just all over the place must have been quite amazing to i mean to see but you know it's gone now yeah i'll just look this up quickly Shall I play some uh, Penny Whistle Jive while you're doing that? Uh, if you want to. Um, I'm just having a read about it, but uh, it's the first major style of South African popular music, Penny Whistle Jive, later known as Quila. Um, Groups of flautists played on the streets of South African cities in the 1950s, many of them in white areas where police would arrest them for creating a public disturbance. (laughs) Disturbing the peace by playing the flute in the street. (laughs) Basically. Um, Some young whites were attracted to the music and came to be known as ducktails. Don't know why, but... um... 
as, as far as I can see, most of the actual decline in elephant populations has been within your lifetime, um, oh, where right, okay. like it's been heavily scaled up. Yeah. Um, but I suppose that would have started earlier. Okay, I'm just going to quickly play some of that uh, penny whistle jive while I've, since I've uh, said it. That's interesting. <laughs> I yeah. should, I've got to say on the video clip, it's funny just just see the whites kind of just stood around like being miserable and kind of, I don't know, showing a kind of feigned interest. It's kind of, it looks yeah. like they're just kind of basically, it looks like they're just playing recorder in the street, basically. But Interesting cool. though. Yeah. yeah. Sort of an, an act of rebellion, I suppose. Yeah. yeah in a strange it. way. Mm. Gotta play the recorder, eh? Penny whistle, not recorder. Carry on, please. <laughs> um, so actually, uh, the British occupied the Cape in 1795, basically trying to um, get at France um, to outcompete them. Uh, Something has never changed, eh? Yeah, this basically ended the Dutch East India Company's control of this region, and they, I think, vaguely remember from the Indonesia episode. Thereafter, fairly shortly, um, dissolved basically. Yeah. Um, but the British uh, returned it to Dutch control um, in the Treaty of Amiens in uh, 1802. Mm -hmm. However, <laughs> 1806. Britain re-annexes the Cape Colony because Napoleonic Wars, which seemed to influence every part of world history here, um, basically they wanted to use it as a strategic base because the British Empire was growing, uh, especially in India. And prior to the Suez Canal, you had to go around South Africa. Yeah, that must... When did the Suez Canal open? Uh, I, to I mean, that's check. a long journey, isn't it, that? Yeah, I think people forget. It's easy to um, underestimate how big Africa is because of the, I think the way the map is kind of distorted, isn't it? Yeah, it's the Mercator projection. Mm. The things at the poles are shown as being bigger because showing things on a flat map that's a 3D world is kind of complicated and has political um... implications. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, hold on. 1850s, roughly. Right. 1850s. It, it, 1869, it was like officially opened, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for a while after this, you would have needed to go around South Africa. So it'd be very important for trading to have this as a sort of strategic base yeah. where I assume you could raid French ships and stuff from. 
I think as well, was that not um, from what I uh, understand that going around the Cape was quite a treacherous um, shipping endeavor, if you like, because you've got the basically the is it the Indian Ocean and the Pacific meeting there? Uh, Atlantic and Indian. Sorry, Atlantic. I meant I meant Atlantic. Yeah. Um, so I think it was quite rough an area. And still, yeah. probably still is. <laughs> but ships are a lot bigger now. So. Hmm. Uh, they also wanted to use this to a source of raw materials, I suppose. And also, it says here, an outlet for emigration. Um, and so they had a fairly high emigration and birth rate mm. uh, which meant they actually began to run out run out of land in the cape colony for people uh, which meant the british decided to expand east and uh, with a significant military force against african communities beginning in about like 1811 uh, they did not see africans as being part of their colony and so mm. they expelled them uh, beyond the Great Fish River to the east. The Great Fish River. <laughs> yes. And so uh, there were four main defensive um, African states that developed because of this uh, throughout like the 1820s. And so we had the Pedi, which we mentioned before. They are led by Sekwati. The Ungawani, these are led by Sobuza. Uh, the Mopateli, these are led by uh, Moshosho. And uh, the Zulu, led by Shaka, you've probably heard of. Yeah, Shaka Zulu. Yeah, yeah. The, the Zulu are the only ones of those I'd heard of before tonight. Yeah, I think as we go along, you probably recognize more of the names, but this is yeah. the 1820s right now. Yeah, yeah. So um, English began to replace the language of the colony uh, from the original Dutch. Um, and by 1824, the pound replaced the Dutch currency at the Rix dollar. Um, mm. And from 1824, the Zulu actually began clashing with Cape colonists, um, as well as um, mercenary armies that had developed. Mm. Uh, from 1825, Britain began appointing some colonial governors with an advisory council. Uh, this advisory... <laughs> I bet that went down well. I mean, this was mainly for the Cape Colony itself. It yeah. seemed relatively successful, I think. Uh, so this advisory council actually got upgraded to a legislative council, basically meaning that the colonists, not Africans, could um, vote on their own government, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, round about um, 1834. Uh, mm. So by 1825, uh, Shaka had um, basically united a lot of groups into a large militarized state, and these had fortified settlements, which were called um, Amakanda. Mm. And these were defending against various raiders, providing protection for refugees, but they also began trading in ivory and slaves themselves. There's always a thing here of everyone's kind of doing quite nasty stuff yeah. uh, at this time in history. Right, yeah. So uh, Britain supposedly was supposed to have ended its uh, slave trade in 1807, but it still continued to import slaves to fill 
labor shortages in South Africa, mm. as well as um, Anglo-Boer commandos, which um, illegally captured San women and children, which are from across the borders of the colony. Yeah. And there were the, the warlord states that I mentioned before were still raiding and capturing um, other groups of Africans from various communities. Mm. Uh, so the Cape authorities began to actually overhaul their policy in relation to slavery in 1828, uh, because there was a growing anti-slavery ethos throughout the British Empire. So this actually allowed black laborers to cross the border, but they required proper passwords, and these were only issued by soldiers and missionaries. And this is, uh, you may have heard of the pass laws. Uh, this is the beginning of them. Not sure. Um, please elaborate. I, I haven't heard of them. Basically, kind of... to work in the Cape Colony, you needed to possess proper passes that right. okay. had quite, they had like quite strict um like contracts that you had to abide by and you were basically forced to work for that person until your contract stated yeah. otherwise yeah i mean it, the the system itself does ring a bell in terms of do, do you know how long it went on for uh i'll get into that yeah i, I mean i've not heard i've not heard it called the past laws but um that that kind of system of having um slaves that were kind of assigned to maybe a particular family or household or something who were white um yeah is definitely in the cry freedom film from the 1980s the passes also don't actually give you choice over your own employer right um they're almost so like it, they, it, it, your employer it, effectively owns you basically if you're in the in country effect, in the it's colony. not quite slavery but it's sort of indentured servitude though yes yeah, those words were in my mind, but I don't know exactly what they mean. <laughs> so um, restrictions were briefly lifted on the co, which were the sort of people around the area that the Cape Colony was initially set up in, which allowed them specifically to work without passes and choose their own employers. Mm. Uh, Anglo-Boer armies tried to basically take more workers from the east by invading further um slavery was formally abolished um uh, in the period from 1828 to 1834 yeah um but african laborers became uh restricted by criminal penalties for uh breach of contract and desertion basically they did not want to work for someone anymore despite having these passes uh they did not have the freedom to do that they were treated as criminals for that yeah mm. So in 1828, the Zulu actually began allying with European raiders uh, to basically seize women and children to sell to French ships. Um, okay. However, uh, the Zulu elite be became split into factions when Shaka was actually assassinated in 1828. And so um, Shaka's half-brother, Dingane, became leader but this was followed by a series of civil wars and um, this interfered in their trading alliances with the Europeans. Right. 
the Portuguese slave trade in the area had only expanded since 1810, which uh, just destabilized the whole region. Uh, whole populations were being removed and um, groups like the Gaza and Ngoni actually joined Portuguese soldiers in raiding further inland. Yeah. Can I just ask if we are approaching a convenient break point between the episodes at all? I kind of wanted to go up till like 1870, but uh, I don't know how quickly I could actually get there. Okay. But it, it's more just like, I don't know, because there might be too much to leave for the next episode otherwise. Okay. Well, keep going for now then, because it's just because I've got school in the morning, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh... So um, I'll try skim over a little bit more. Okay. Um, so various uh, Josa groups were being basically annexed by the British army as they were pushing further east. Um, they had like a counterattack in 1834, uh, this was by a group called the Ranabi Jose. Uh, but this was followed by a major invasion, which resulted in thousands of Jose dying, uh, which is led by uh, Governor Durban. Uh, you may have heard of yeah. Durban. Uh, Durban is a town in South Africa, ah, right. named after the governor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> oh, well, this is kind of, uh, there's a bit of a story here about when the British actually crossed the river, um, right. ravaging through Joza territories. Um, the chief, Hintza, tried to have discussions with British military officials, mm. uh, but in response, he was held hostage and, when trying to escape, was killed. Oh, dear. <laughs> um However, uh, Lord Glenelg, who's the colonial secretary at the time, uh, disapproved of uh, the governor's policies and basically ordered them to stop seizing African territory east of the Great Kay River, uh, which meant that some Africans for a while at least managed to maintain some autonomy and could deal with the colony diplomatically. Mm. Anyway, so uh, Boer settlers began migrating north in great high numbers in something that's known as the Great Trek. Um, mm. This was actually originally assumed, sort of from a historical perspective, to be to escape British policies, basically to get away from the abolition of slavery. Mm. Uh, however, it, this seems unlikely because um, a lot of the former slave owners of Boroughs uh, stayed in the colony and the labor shortage from before had actually been plugged by about 1835. Right. And so it's probably more likely that they just wanted to extend colonial lands even further north. Mm. So the region that they were moving to had already been destabilized by years of raiding. Uh, the trekkers came across the underbelly and uh, basically crushed them along with the Greek were, which are these um, warlord states, as well as the Rolong and Taung. Uh, this was in 1837, which caused the underbelly to flee further north and settle in modern <laughs> How do you spell Zimbabwe. that? I just keep thinking underbelly. <laughs> is uh, it an- N- 
D E B E L E. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the Zulus were initially actually quite successful against the Europeans, but um, after Shaka's death, uh, they became overpowered um, in battles such as the Battle of Blood River in 1838. That sounds uh, nice. <laughs> the Boer attacks on Zulus ramped up and caused a civil war between Dingane, the current ruler, and Mapande. Uh, Mapande was allied with the Boers, and so that effectively split the Zulu kingdom, mm. and the Boers were allowed to seize large parts of Zulu territory by 1840. Um, the Boers continued to penetrate north and attack weaker African chiefdoms to gain more territory and more power, hunting elephants as slaves as they went and trading with the Portuguese. Mm -hmm. uh, through the 1840s and 50s, a lot of British settlers moved east into an area called Natal. Uh, oh, Natal. Which... Sorry, what? I've heard of I've heard of that. Natal, is that a province? Yeah. 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 Um, and this was actually the first time that Europeans and Africans were kind of living together on the same land where the Africans weren't being enslaved or forced into labor. Right. Mm -hmm. And so some boroughs went to Natal to ally with the British settlers uh, developing farms, uh, but these farms depended on forced labor largely from Africans. Mm. Uh, however, there were continued slave and cattle raids in Natal, uh, which basically the British used to justify to annex the whole region in 1843. This is kind of where the British began annexing a lot of various different territories. However, yeah. um, annexing Natal uh, gave some parts of Zulu territories back to them that had been taken by the Boers in their civil war. I'm, every time you say Boers, I'm thinking of, either thinking of boa constrictors or those fluffy scarf things. Feathery scarves. <laughs> Carry on. Um, so the, the British didn't really want to annex um, what's called the Trans-Orangian area, basically the area beyond the Orange River, mm. which the Boers had moved into um, because the Boers trading with Portugal wasn't really a threat to Britain because as we went into in Portugal, Britain and Portugal were very closely aligned and so they didn't really see that as a threat. Yeah. However, they uh, were fighting with the Rahabi Josa that we mentioned before uh, in 1846, which meant that um, the colonial government basically used this to justify to annex more land to the east uh, between the Great Fish and the Great Kay rivers, mm. as well as the Orange and the Val rivers. Uh, which established something called the Orange River Sovereignty, kind of marking a new border to the colony. Yeah. Um, just skipping ahead a bit so we go more here. Uh, right, so uh, the Harding Commission, which is a law put in place in 1852, uh, set aside reserves 
so like Native American reserves that you would get in North America, but these were for um Africans. Yeah. Um, and this this commission also said that missionaries and certain chiefs that were like uh, I suppose willing would uh, be brought in to persuade Africans to work for the European settlers. Mm. Um, the Cape settlers were actually given a representative government in 1853. Uh, which had elected members in the legislature and um, an executive appointed by London. Um, right. From 1872, the assembly, the legislative assembly were allowed to elect their own leader. Bearing mm-hmm. in mind, this is still mainly um, uh, settlers being given the vote. There were some Africans allowed to vote. Um, yeah. but they were it's quite a small number so they weren't really given that much political power it's weird um, trying to get your head around what colonization actually is you know i've got like this i mean it's obviously not but i've got this kind of vision in my head of like um you know you get like british kind of um areas in spain <laughs> where people have kind of moved to live now i mean that kind of exists in south africa where you have very white areas yeah yeah but then to actually kind of take legislative control of those areas <laughs> kind of you know with with yeah. recognition from london it, it would just seem a bit strange you know <laughs> but yeah at the time at least they had um relatively low requirements to be allowed to vote however mm. over the years this got reduced and uh, these voting rights were completely abolished by 1936 but that's uh, getting a bit ahead of ourselves yeah right so the uh, Sotho or Sofo people um, managed to actually fend off conquest from both the British and Boer settlers oh well done um, <laughs> and so after defeating his rival uh, Tlokwa in 1854 Mishosho became one of the most powerful African leaders is soldiers used uh, firearms as well as horses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's in like a relatively cold, um, high lying area where modern Lesotho is, um, which basically allowed them to fend off invasion for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, because conflicting with the British would have been um, unprofitable. Um, hold on. No, sorry. Uh, the British basically didn't want to have unprofitable conflicts. Uh, so they withdrew from the northern frontier, uh, which meant that the Transvaal and the Free Orange State, these are Boer. I've heard of both of states, those. Uh, they gained independence. They kind of wanted to unify into one borough states, but they failed to do that, and they had about a decade of civil war over this. Yeah, I mean, some of these, some of these um, names and areas are starting to ring a bell. Um, my kind of it'll probably be more in the next episode, but um, I just remember doing current affairs in school in the eighties and having apartheid kind of. Um, described to us if you like and bearing in mind that when I took current affairs in the early 80s I was at an independent school so it was quite a possibly quite a biased 
interpretation but at the same time it was it was quite heavily criticized so you know obviously by yeah. that time by that time it was frowned on among the respected circles if you like <laughs> and so um the british began to control a region called Kafraria uh, or Kafraria um in the east which basically destroyed the power of the remaining Jersey tree uh, chiefs which only got worse because there was a severe lung disease epidemic in cattle uh, which started in 1854 right <laughs> so in the north uh the Af remaining african states competed and cooperated with each other and so we have the Swazi and the Gaza, which supplied slaves to the Boers and the Portuguese. And in the south, we have the Zulu, which was competing with the Swazi and the Boers uh, to dominate various uh, river valleys. However, they still had another civil war here. Um, and so in 1856, we have the Battle of Undonda Kasuka, mm. which basically elevates Mapande from before which sort of became ruler of the Zulu, uh, his younger son, uh, said Shweo, over his older son, uh, Mubuyazi. Mm. And so now we have uh, Sech Shweo, who is now leading the Zulus effectively. Right. Uh, so, uh, so in uh, 1857, we have the remaining Josa groups, which uh, supposedly this is at least the story here, um, killed their remaining cattle and uh, chose to grow uh, few crops. And this is apparently in accordance with a prophecy uh, <laughs> that this doing this would cause their ancestors to rise from the grave and kill the European invaders. Which they obviously didn't. No, I, I don't know how accurate this idea of a prophecy is from Britannica's perspective or whether right. it's just the story colonials told. All right. Okay. Um, but many Joes are starved and others were forced to go to the Cape Colony to work, basically. Mm. Uh, the Sutu continued to hold their lands and actually mobilized a force of around 10,000 soldiers in 1858 defeating the Boers. Um, in uh, 1858 as well, uh, Soshangani, who's the leader of the Gaza, uh, he died. And so a civil war followed that, which involved the Swazi, the Boers, and the Portuguese. Mm -hmm. uh, throughout the 1860s, we have many more African leaders that had sort of set up these relatively big military states dying we have Sekwati from the Pedi, which I think we mentioned earlier, uh Mswati of the Swazi in 1865, uh Mzilkazi of the Underbelly in uh, 1868, and Mushosho of the Sutu in um 1870. All of mm. these African leaders dying in a relatively short time period of around a decade. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh Around about the 1860s as well, the Pedi and Swazi groups in Natal uh, had managed to gather enough strength to avoid their people being conscripted into labour for the colonists. Right. The Swazi even gained control of an area up to Maputo, which is the capital of modern-day Mozambique, uh, which actually caused the Gaza to migrate into Zimbabwe. 
1865, Caffraria merged with the existing Cape Colony, which meant that um, many Africans that were sort of redefined into a group called Fingo. Uh, most of these people resettled eastwards, creating an area known as Fingerland. <laughs> okay. Uh, so by 1866, following their defeat by the Suto, uh, the Boers had reunited, come back together, and they wanted the fertile lands that the Suto had. Mm. And so they managed to defeat them and forced them to sign the Treaty of Faba Bosu, uh, which uh, basically sort of decimated their power there. And uh, the Suto lands were actually subsequently um, annexed by the British in um, 1868. So the British continue to sort of grab territory here. Yeah. And this is because, um, so in uh, around about 1858, the governor at the time, George Gray, had proposed this idea of a federated South Africa. Basically this idea of uniting this huge area into one thing. Sorry? Yeah. Uh, and um, this is largely because of the discovery of gold and diamonds, which later sort of fueled this idea going forward. Yeah. And so uh, we reach probably where we're going to end for today, where the British are preparing to expand into a bunch of new areas, um, basically on this idea of getting money from gold and diamonds to form what would go on to be called South Africa rather than just the Cape Colony. Bunch of greedy bastards, the British, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> so we'll go into that in more detail in the next episode. Hopefully we'll have time to cover that. In yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, thank you very much for doing all the research and stuff because, I mean, I do learn. To be honest, a lot of it um, does tend to go a little bit not over my head but like when it, when you're talking about all different tribes and leaders and stuff or bands of different kind of um i don't know just what 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 can you use instead of tribes if tribes isn't politically correct um, it, it's just i think there's a move away from um calling tribe. i think bands in the sort of archaeological sense would be more correct like uh right. to gather bands yeah I suppose there's some kind of violent connotations with tribes, isn't there? Like, um, it, it's maybe it's just tribe isn't the most useful distinction because yeah, it's not very yeah. specific. Interestingly enough, I mean, um, I don't know how we're gonna, I can't remember how we do this at the end with um, what's on screen, but um, that Cry Freedom film, interestingly enough, was actually directed by Richard Attenborough as well. I don't think it would have been that long after Gandhi. Um, but I would certainly say it's a bit more. I mean, it does. It has been criticised a bit for its main focus being on the development of the white character in the film. But I think um, in the mid eighties, uh, it was probably a necessary um, focus in order to actually get the story seen. If you like, it's a very good portrayal of Steve Biko by De uh, Denzel Washington. Um, so I mean I, I find it a really good film um, but anyway um, 
how do we do this? Do we finish off and then put the national anthem on? Yeah, yeah. And um, I think what we'd normally do is like show the map of the areas we've now covered. Right. Okay. So sure. I'll add in South Africa for that. I'm quite sure how to do that because I do I do want for the YouTube viewers to have um the screen shared here of the bit we, we at can the end of the film. Show it at the start of the next episode, I guess. But what the flag or the map? No, the the map. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, this rendition of the um South African national anthem is taken from the closing um scene of the nineteen eighty seven film Cry Freedom, which I would highly recommend. The only place I can see that you can actually get it now, I think, would be to either buy or rent it on Amazon Prime. It doesn't seem to be on any of the other streaming pl platforms for free. Um, but um, it's one of those films that just makes me ooh, kind of just gives me a bit of a, an uncomfortable feeling about where I come from, you know, um, which is not undeserved. But um, if you are wanting to share with the uh, what's on screen, it's, um, it's get onto YouTube to watch this last bit. It's almost three minutes long. Is that okay? Uh, yeah. Okay. So as long as it wouldn't get like copyright straight or anything, but well, I don't know. <laughs> we'll soon find out. The music might, but that's that's probably going to happen anyway with the other music clips we've played. As long as it's viewable, we might get an ad put on the beginning or something. But uh, yeah. So um, do we say goodbye first before we put this on? Uh, sure. Well, as right. I say, thank you very much for covering the history of South Africa from three million years ago up until 1870 BCE, uh, AD, sorry. What do they call it? Uh, CE, Common Era. Common Era. Okay, CE. Yeah. Um, and we'll probably be back, hopefully, in about four weeks' time. <laughs> I don't know when this is going to go out. It'll be between now and Thursday. I'll try and get it out. But um, the last yeah. one, I stayed up quite late on the Sunday just getting it out sort of that night, but I wasn't at school the next morning. So I'll work on it over the next couple of days just to get it out. And uh, Okay. Um, yes, I'll send you the audio afterwards, but um, yep. yes. Okay, right. So, well, hold on, my brain's not functioning. What do we do here? You need to. Yes, I, I hope you enjoyed that sort of background to probably the part of history that you're more familiar with when it comes to South Africa um, coming into the 20th century. But I hope that sort of gives you a bit of a background perspective to how that actually all started. Yeah, yeah. And the end scene that we're going to show you from the film, uh, if you're on YouTube, you'll just hear the National Anthem if you're on just on podcast. But if you're on YouTube, you will see the end scene of the film where they list all the, ex all the reasons given by the authorities in South Africa for deaths of black people in custody from I think from around the 1960s or something it'll say on the screen anyway um, and it's uh, I can't describe what it is but anyway do you want to say the say the words and I'll put it on sure okay so I have been fireball and I've been the orbiter
And this has been episode five of Breaking Borders, South Africa, part one. Bye. Bye. That is a difficult watch. Sorry, let's yeah. just come back up there. Wow. <laughs> For the audio people, there's quite a number of clear euphemisms. For... Self, self-strangulation, is that even possible? That, yeah, that was the one that struck out to me the most. But... <laughs> A lot of suicides by hanging, which I'm guessing probably weren't actual suicides. But they seem to come in waves as well. You then get injuries where the injuries aren't specified. You get several in a block that were the same thing. It's just like, yeah, let's we'll come up with a new excuse now, you know. Also epilepsy coming up a lot, which I imagine a lot of them did not actually have epilepsy.
Mm. Anyway, I'll best get off. <laughs> yes. Um, um, thank you very much for all your efforts. And we shall be back in a couple of weeks with some bollock breaking, I believe. Yes, I shall decide. Do we have subjects for that? No, I, I don't yet. know yet. We'll see. Okay. I'll leave it in your capable hands. And, uh, anyway, uh, yes. Any, any last words for the uh, afterbirth? <laughs> if they call it that. Uh, Fuck apartheid. Well, yeah. Um, yes. I mean, right now, talking about the British and Dutch in particular, more fuck imperialism at this point. But um, yes, apartheid. Yeah. We'll go into a lot more detail on in the next episode. Yeah. Cool. This podcast is part of the After Dark Podcast Network.